Our scripture reading for today's service is taken from 2 Timothy 3, verse 14 to 17. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you, you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in, in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be totally equipped for every good work. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see so many people here this morning. It's very encouraging. I hope everybody's been enjoying this sort of recent stretch of warm weather we've been having. I know I have. You know, it's really nice. Uh, I, I took this picture the other day of a, like the horror frost, and it was beautiful. Um, it's just been nice to knock off like almost a whole month of winter already and, and really have no super cold days and, and not even that much snow. It's great. Uh, I was kind of curious about the weather the other day, and so I, I went online to look look at some stuff, and I was I was uh, interested in what it said on the Environment Canada website. Maybe you've seen this before. Uh, as I was reading through the weather and the website, I saw this statement that said, "Get current weather alerts across Canada from the authoritative source of weather alerts 24/7." And I thought that's that's kind of an interesting statement, you know. Environment Canada is calling themselves like the authoritative source for weather in Canada. You know, in other words, you know, if, if you need to know something about the weather, if you want the real answers, Environment Canada is where it's at. And that's pretty funny because as I was looking, I also noticed another headline that said Fox News was the, uh, the weather authority. And then I saw another one that said ABC News is the weather authority. And then I saw an app on, on the app store that, that was called Weather Authority. You know, it seems a lot of people are claiming to be the authority or be the ones that have the final say when it comes to the weather. And I think we're sort of used to this, right? Uh, we're used to this sort of language in our culture. There's a lot of voices claiming to have the final say on many different things. And sometimes it's confusing and, and sometimes it's outright overwhelming. <laughs> You know, when it comes to the weather, maybe that's not a big, a big deal, really, because let's be honest, most of the time they're all wrong anyway. <laughs> um, but when it comes to more serious matters, like maybe morality, for instance, where do we go for guidance on matters like that that carry a lot more weight? Who's our authority? Who do we turn to for answers when it really matters? Did you know that the Bible claims to have authority? In our scripture reading today, verse 16 says that all scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God. In other words, you know, the Bible is claiming that it's not merely a human document or a human writing. It's a message that comes from God himself. That's a big deal. And we, we started talking about that last Sunday as well. And, and uh, Wayne shared this passage with us that I want to read again. It says in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, that all, uh, sorry, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. 
For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible claims to have authority because its words are from an all-knowing and an all-powerful God. And because of the nature of who is the author, the message deserves to have authority over your life and mine. That's quite a claim though, right? It has the potential to affect everything we do. And so it makes sense for us to ask the question, can we be confident in that claim? Can we be confident that it is true? And if it is, what does that mean for your life and mine? This morning, I want to explore this claim with you. I want to look at some of the evidence uh, that can help us to see if it's true or not. The evidence that we're going to talk to and is, is going to follow this format that's commonly used. It'll be broken down into two categories, internal evidence and external evidence. And so those are just fancy ways to say that internal evidence comes from things that we can learn from within the Bible itself about this claim that the Bible is authoritative and that it's truly the Word of God. And external evidence is the evidence that we find outside of the Bible. So this morning I'd like to share a few things that I've come across that have really helped me believe that the Bible is the authority over my life. And then I'd like to also talk about the response to that. If the Bible really does have authority, what does that mean for you and me today? So let's start by looking at some of the internal evidence. Uh, for me, this is one of the strongest pieces of evidence uh, for the internal evidence is the unity of the message. The unity of the message of the Bible. You would hopefully expect to find unity in a book that was written by a single author or even maybe a, a, a small group of authors who are working together. But the Bible is so much more than that. The Bible is not a single book. Wayne pointed this out last week. It's a collection of 66 books all bound together in one volume. They were written over a span of at least 1,500 years or, or probably more. The original documents that are in your Bible that you hold were originally written in three different languages. They were written in different countries. They were written by at least 40 different people. And those authors came from widely different backgrounds. Some of them were kings. Some of them were tax collectors. Some of them were fishermen. The diversity is about as huge as you could possibly imagine. The writing spanned over way longer than any human lifetime. It crossed cultures, it crossed languages, it crossed borders, it crossed historical eras. But yet the Bible, when taken together, fits beautifully into one unified story. That's just incredible to me. For instance, uh, I just wanted to point out one, one piece of this, and there's so many. But at the very first chapter of the Bible... You know the creation story, right? God creates the world. He creates Adam and Eve. And then it goes on to say this in Genesis 1, 28, and then also verse 31. It says, God blessed them, being Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then skipping to verse 31, 
It says that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. So this is the beginning of the story. God made his creation, and he wanted humanity to help him rule over what he had created. He wanted them to multiply and spread the love that he had for them to others and to to spread the fruit of his creation around. He wanted to co-rule with them in his creation, and things were very good. But it didn't stay this way uh, for too long, as we know. Things went pretty sideways when humanity chose to sin instead. But if we fast forward from here, the very first chapter of the Bible, all the way to what is the second last chapter in our Bibles, we find something that is pretty incredible at the end of God's story. Remember, what I'm about to put here from the second last chapter was written hundreds of years later in a different language, in a different culture, by a different author. But check out what the Apostle John describes from his vision of heaven. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Isn't that beautiful? The story ends right where it began. God's people are back with him again, dwelling together apart from sin, just like it was in the beginning. And all the issues caused by sin have been wiped away. No more death, mourning, crying or pain. So obviously, you know, We skipped a few details in the middle there uh, between Genesis and Revelation. But you can kind of see that the Bible is a story about a God who created humanity to rule with him over his creation. But when we turned our back on his offer and chose another path instead, he knew that path was going to destroy us. So the entire story of the Bible is about a God And how he would stop at nothing to rescue and restore his wayward people back into a relationship with him. Until finally, at last, his love conquers over sin forever and ever. And from cover to cover, despite all the diversity of authorship that we talked about, this story fits together so well. It's just truly amazing. Maybe you've noticed this when you're reading through the Bible. You know, you come across a passage somewhere and you think, man, that sounds a lot like that other passage that I read in this other part of the Bible uh, that says sort of the same thing. Well, it turns out the Bible is full of these connections and they're often called cross-references. You know, things that link together similar themes, similar people, places, teachings, etc., It's hard to describe how amazing this interconnected nature of the Bible really is with words. So I want to share something this morning. It's a beautiful project that I that I stumbled across. uh, And it was a collaboration done between a computer science professor named Chris Harrison and a pastor named Christoph Rumhild. They took every single one of these cross-references that they could find in the Bible, and they created a beautiful image from it. Here it is up on the screen. So each bar along the bottom of the picture represents one chapter in the Bible. And every time something from 
that chapter links to another place in the Bible that has the same concept in it or the same teaching. There's an arc drawn between those two chapters. The different colors represent the distance between the two chapters uh, within the Bible. So this resulting image that you're looking at here, it contains, get this, 63,779 arcs. <laughs> it's amazing. To me, it's, it's not only a beautiful image, but it also is a very impactful way to describe this sort of unity of the biblical message. It's all connected. I actually have this picture. It's framed in my office. If you want to look at it uh, up close, just come and find me after. So unity. It's an amazing internal evidence. But unity is, is not the only thing. There's more evidence that the Bible has authority of being a message from God to his people. The Bible is also full of prophecy. Wayne touched briefly on this last week, and I, and I sort of want to build on what he started saying uh, by offering a couple of examples. The first one I want to share with you is from the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel. Daniel was written somewhere around 600 to 500 B.C. We know that based on the, uh, the current events being described in the book. Uh, and the date is important. 600 to 500 B.C. is very important because in chapters 7 and 8 of, of the book of Daniel, he gives a prophecy, an amazing prophecy about these four successive kingdoms that were going to come. Daniel was alive during the first one. The Babylonians, they were in power. They were the world empire at the time. But in the prophecy, Daniel says that the Babylonians would eventually fall to the Medo-Persians. And we know that this happened in 539 BC. But he didn't stop there. After them, he said that the Greeks were going to come into power. And we know that this also happened in 331 BC when Alexander the Great uh, led the Greeks into power. And then he said after that that the Romans would come into power and they took control of Palestine somewhere around 63 BC. This prophecy is amazing. It's actually mind-boggling that he could have predicted all this. And obviously we can see from that that it wasn't himself predicting it. We hold this prophecy in our hands as an amazing evidence that the Bible is more than just a human document. There's so many more prophecies we could talk about. And I want to touch on just one more. And we don't have nearly enough time to do justice to this next group of prophecies. But I just want to give out some sort of like rapid fire uh, prophecies on some amazing predictions from the Old Testament about Jesus. So here, here they are. Hold on tight. So Micah predicted, the prophet Micah predicted that the birthplace of the Messiah was going to be in Bethlehem. That was around 740 B.C. Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be of virgin birth. Jeremiah predicted that the Messiah would come through the line of David. And Isaiah also predicted that the Messiah would be crucified. And then he talks about him living again after his death. And all of these prophecies were, were written literally hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. I mean, that's incredible. 
Sometimes I think we kind of miss the significance of things like this because we have the Bible all together in one book or maybe it's on our phone in, in sort of one app or something and we think that it's sort of all together but we miss that these things were written like hundreds of years apart by different people in different times. It's amazing. The internal evidence of the Bible, the, the fact that it's more than a human book is overwhelming. And there's so much more we could talk about. But I want to move on to the external evidence. Because somebody's going to say this, and justifiably so. You know, you can't use the Bible to prove that the Bible has authority. That's like a circular logic or a circular reasoning. And fair enough. You know, many different books claim to have a message from a deity. There's a Quran, right? There's a Book of Mormon. There's a Guru Granth Sahib. They all have a similar claim to the Bible that it is a message from God. And if, if that's the case, then how do we know that the Bible is any different? Is there any evidence from outside the Bible itself that could give us some confidence about this claim that the Bible makes? Well, it turns out there is. A lot, actually. More than we can cover this morning. But I just want to point out a few things. The first one is from the field of archaeology. Over and over, the Bible has proven to line up with the archaeological evidence that is continually being discovered. There's even been some cases where the Bible has faced intense criticism uh, for years even, before eventually being proven true. One popular example of this is regarding the Hittite people uh, from 2 Kings chapter 7. The Bible talks about this people group called the Hittites. And some, uh, some scholars earlier on criticized the Bible on this point because from their perspective, saying that the Hittite people existed was sort of bogus because there was no evidence of any, anything about a Hittite people anywhere in ancient history or from the world of archaeology. And it was like this way for a long time. But it turns out, in about uh, 1843, so it's a while ago now, but archaeologists discovered the remains of the Hittite people. The Hittites were real after all. And it's just one example of how the Bible has proven to be reliable and accurate, even when a lot of people are not agreeing with that. And it's facing intense criticism. Another more recent situation uh, comes from what it says in Luke chapter 2, where the Bible records that Jesus' earthly parents, you know, Mary and Joseph, uh, they were living in Nazareth before Jesus was born. And so in 2008, there was a book that was published uh, that launched an attack against this claim, this Nazareth claim. The book made a case that the town of Nazareth uh, was not inhabited until like late in the first century A.D., and therefore there was no way that Jesus' parents could have been living in an established town called Nazareth before he was born, like the Bible says in Luke 2. Ironically, in 2009, just one year later, an archaeological investigation uncovered the remains of an ancient house in Nazareth. And the contents of the house were dated to be found in the first century A.D., suggesting that the town already existed and was hustling and bustling at the time, exactly like the Bible describes in Luke 2. The, word, the world of archaeology gives us evidence that the, what the Bible is claiming is historically reliable. 
And if it's reliable about those historical facts, it builds our confidence that it's reliable about other things as well. Okay, so besides uh, archaeology, we've also got historical evidence, another important one. I'm going to show you something here. There's a whole bunch of names. And all of these people are ancient writers from outside the Bible who wrote something about the Bible that lines up with what the Bible says. And if we had time, I would love to go through all of them this morning. And if you want to look at that, you can come and find me later. I'll I'll pass along this to anybody who wants to look at it. But I'm just going to go through two of these this morning. The first one is a guy named Thallus. Thallus lived around 52 AD, so very close to the time Jesus was alive. And he wrote about a darkness that occurred when Jesus was crucified, which is also recorded, if, if you know, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of those Gospels record this darkness that occurred when Jesus was crucified. Thallus himself, he didn't even believe in Jesus. He wasn't a believer, and he was actually quite hostile towards the Christian faith. So when he was writing about this darkness, he was trying to explain it away as an eclipse, uh, which isn't possible, by the way, based on the time of year and all that. But anyway, his account is really amazing because it's from someone who didn't even believe in Jesus. It's not in the Bible. But what he documented about the darkness corroborates or it, it lines up with what the three Gospels say. And it's, it's pretty amazing evidence about the crucifixion account that comes from outside of the Bible. Okay, so another ancient historian you've probably heard of is Josephus. Uh, you've probably heard that name before. He lived as well around the time of Jesus. He, he lived around 37 to 101 A.D., And he wrote about all different matters of Jewish history, including a couple references to Jesus himself. Unfortunately, there is a lot of debate around what Josephus actually wrote because um, many reputable scholars believe that his work has been tampered with in some way by early Christians who added to what Josephus said to try to make it sound more impressive or something. Uh, There's been a lot of work done, though, in in recent time to try to remove the extra embellishment and get back to what Josephus actually wrote originally. And although this, what I'm about to show you, is still not without controversy, it is one of the more widely accepted reconstructions uh, of what Josephus wrote. And it was published by John Meyer. Uh, This is what it says. This is what Josephus is claimed to have originally wrote. It says, at this time... There, was a man, uh, there appeared Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of the people who received the truth with pleasure, and he gained a following both among many Jews and among many Greek, of Greek origin. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who he had loved... Uh, sorry, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. So here's another pretty amazing piece of history from outside the Bible. This account from Josephus tells us that there was a man named Jesus. He was a wise teacher. He did amazing deeds. He had a huge following. And he was accused by the leaders of his time and then crucified by Pilate. And after he died, a group of people called Christians continued to follow him. That's a lot of information, and all of it lines up with exactly what the Bible says about Jesus. 
Josephus wasn't a Christian. He didn't believe in Jesus. His writings are not in the Bible. But what he said about him offers a lot of evidence and support uh, to what the Bible claims about Jesus. All right, so another gem. One more here. Another gem from history is regarding uh, what happened to some of the apostles of Jesus. <clears throat> this guy here on the screen, I don't know if it's his original picture, but uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, he was an ancient Greek historian who wrote about the history of the Jewish people and the history of Christianity especially. He lived from about 260 to 339 AD. And in his writings, he records the history of the death of some of the apostles of Jesus. He said that the apostle Peter was put to death by crucifixion. He also said that the apostle Paul was beheaded for his faith. And we also know from Acts 12, 1 and 2, that the apostle James was killed by the sword. And these are important things to know. These accounts send a strong message. You know, you might expect somebody um, like these apostles to go along with a lie if it was benefiting them in some way, right? They might go along with it. But there is no way that these guys died or that they would willingly die for a made-up story about Jesus. They had conviction in what they believed. They died for their faith because they truly believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And the fact that they chose to pay with their lives for that sends a strong message to us that what they believed was true. Okay. I, I wish we could go on and on about this, but the last piece of, of evidence that I want to uh, talk about this morning is the evidence of changed lives. I kind of base it on, or I'd like to sort of base it on what it says in Hebrews 4.12. It says, for the word of God is active and alive, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, if this passage here is true, if God's word is actually alive, if it can actually do work inside of your human heart, then we should expect to see external evidence of this claim somewhere. We should expect to see lives being transformed. And it turns out we do. Think about yourself. Think about someone else that you know who has really tried to take the Word of God seriously and treat it with authority over their lives. Have you noticed a change in them? Have you noticed a transformation? Have you heard stories about broken addictions? Have you heard about healed relationships? Have you witnessed lives being filled with a new sense of purpose and meaning. I know I have. And to me, this is a very powerful evidence that the Bible is really authoritative, that it is the word of an all-knowing and an infinite God. I wish we could keep going on, on all this evidence. And I, again, I have more. If you'd like to come to me, we can talk about that. Um, but we need to move on. We haven't, we haven't even talked about the creation. There's so much evidence there too. Uh, but maybe that's for another sermon. We need to spend some time talking about what this means for us today. If God's word is really what it claims to be, if it really does have authority over our lives, how are we going to respond to that today? Honestly, one of the main things that stands out to me in all of this is how I need to approach the word of God. 
how my heart needs to be when I approach it. I don't know if you can relate to this or not, but quite often it can be too easy to treat the Bible like it's a textbook that needs to be studied, or maybe a code book that needs to be memorized, or maybe an ancient document that needs to be researched and picked apart and fact-checked and debated over. Now I realize that there is value in doing all of those things, but if that's all the Word of God is to us, it becomes extremely cold and impersonal. The Bible is alive, the Hebrew writer said. And if it's a living message from God to his people, if it's a living message to you and to me, then we should take it personally. We should read it personally, like it has a personal significance for our life today, because it does have that. As I prepared for this, uh, three things became very clear to me that I need to do. And, and maybe these three things will be clear to you as well. And so I want to share, with them, uh, share them with you this morning in hopes that you might apply them to your life too. The first is to consider that the Bible has personal value for your life. The second is that it has personal application for you. And third is that it requires you and me to make a personal commitment to follow what it says. I'd like to close our time by briefly touching on these three topics. We need to treat the Bible like it has value to us personally. It can't just be an important message for your friend or for your parents or for your preacher. It has to have personal value for you. Think about it. In your own life, would you say that you value the Word of God? Do you treat it like it is a message from an infinite and holy God? How do you know you do or you don't? As I was thinking about this, I came across some incredible words from Psalm 119. I'm going to read them, and I I hope you can just listen to how this writer values the Word of God as you listen to his words. See See and hear what the personal value is that he has. From Psalm 119, 97 to 104. Just listen to what he's saying here. See if this lines up with your, your assessment of God's word. And starting in verse 97, he says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate, it, I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than my elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth, I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every wrong path. This person here is a person who is totally sold out for the word of God. He gets it. He personally gets it. He lives in the Word, and the Word of God lives in him. He engages the message. He values the message, and it benefits his life. And I want to be more like this person. Maybe you do too. I'm grateful for our message this morning because it helps me to see that it's not out of reach for any of us. We need to value it. Secondly, we also need to seek a personal application from from God's Word for our lives today. 
How often do you and I open the Word and really approach it with an attitude that we need to see something in there that is for us? You know, I'm not saying that we twist things and take them out of context. But I am saying that if we give it some thought, if we're really trying to connect the words of God with our lives, it will come alive for us. In James 1, the Bible describes itself as a mirror that you're looking into. Have you ever thought about that? A mirror which we can look into to reveal certain things about ourselves. My question and my challenge to all of us today is, when was the last time that you read the Bible like this? Like it was a spiritual mirror for your life. What did you see? We need to look intently into the law, as James says, to see what it reveals to us. We need to apply it. But but thirdly, we need to make a personal commitment to follow it. We need to apply the message to our lives and follow it. And going back to our text from this morning, we can see how this comes out. We can know the word and we can teach the word. But more than that, we also need a we need to make a personal commitment to follow the word of God in our lives. We need to let it personally change us. We need to personally decide that we are going to make it. Uh, the authority over our lives and allow it to change our lives, to correct our paths, to train us in the way that we will walk, the way that God is calling us to go. I just want to end off with this first because I love, I love the picture of being at the crossroads. Jeremiah talks about this. I want to just read two verses from Jeremiah 6, verse 16 and 19. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths and ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said we will not walk in it. And then skipping to verse 19. Hear you earth. I am bringing disaster on this people. The fruit of their schemes because they have not listened to my words and they have rejected my law. Maybe you're standing at a crossroads today. Maybe you've realized that God's Word has not really been the authority for your life and you've substituted your own authority instead. The beautiful thing is that it's not too late to change. Each day is a new day to make the commitment to make God's Word our priority, our authority. We all stand at a crossroads of sorts today. And today is the day that we can and that we must choose to listen to His words, to walk in them, and to experience God's rest for our souls. If you're here this morning and you want to respond to the Word in any way, please feel free to reach out to me. Maybe you just want to chat or pray, or maybe you're ready to take that step of faith and make the Word of God the authority for your life. If you're ready to respond to the good news about Jesus and give your broken life to Him in exchange for His eternal life for you, if you're ready to accept His offer of grace and salvation today through the waters of baptism, please come and talk to me about that. Thank you for your time.